Hello, Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co host, Medea Ocher, Managing Editor at LARB, and Anna Sheckman, LARB's Film Editor. And a fun fact about Anna is that she also writes crossword puzzles for the New York Times. And she's been doing that since she was 14 years old. Just a wee babe. A wee babe with not that many friends in high school. (laughs) Hi, I'm Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. I'm here with my co-hosts, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Kate is an editor-at-large. And I'm here with Anna Schechtman, our film editor. Hi, Anna. Welcome. Hey, great to be here. So Anna is in L.A. to talk about foreign films with us and the best foreign films of the past year. We were talking (laughs) earlier about how I think it's fair to say we all love movies, but we're also all American. And Medea and I study American literature. So there's going to be probably some mispronunciations of some foreign names. So (laughs) bear with us. Prepare. Prepare. (laughs) Prepare for the butchering of names. What kind of year for foreign films was this, Anna? Good year? It was a damn good year in foreign films this year. The three of us actually just saw Julieta last night, which I don't know if it was one of our our favorite films of the year, but it is exemplary of just how many big auteurist European filmmakers were coming out with guns blazing this year. Interestingly, it seemed like it was there was sort of this return to hyper-nationalist cinema. Since sort of 2006, around the Slumdog Millionaire time, there's been a lot of talk in film studies about transnational cinema. Slumdog Millionaire famously was British-produced, Irish-directed, had an Indian cast and crew, and that was sort of seen as the future of foreign film. And And transnational cinema would be cinema that is worked on by... Globally. Globally. Okay. Yes. Yeah, money coming from different places where the cast and crew is coming, where the director's coming. And, right, and Slumdog Millionaire was sort of the first big example of that. The most critically lauded example okay. of that. Some might say it was just sort of like a study in Empire at Work. Others would say it was like oh. the future of transnational cinema. <laughs> Some very different perspectives. <laughs> but this year we have just amazing films coming out of very local and national contexts. We have... Tony Erdman coming out of Germany, which seems like a possibility that there's this sort of resurgence of German cinema. It's just I can't recommend this movie higher. Good to know. Yeah. There's Elle, which won Best Foreign Film at the Golden Globes most recently. Julieta coming out of Spain, directed by Pedro Almodovar. And all of these films, not only are they sort of produced nationally, they're also the scenes are very local a lot of them have these like originary traumas that happen on like small local streets of the suburbs of whatever country is being featured. Right. And that feels like a real departure from the sort of transnational hopes of 2006. I think so. I mean, it's interesting that right now we're seeing a sort of reassertion of national borders in the film industry. Interesting is one word for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And how do those movies, how do foreign films usually come to the U.S.? Has that changed over the last 10 years or is that the same? I mean, we still see most of the films that are coming into the U.S. They are big successes at the major film festivals at Cannes, at Toronto and New York Film Festival. And they are 
the sort of more traditional model in which a there is a sort of star-studded European cast, a big director at the helm, big largely often male director at the helm, and they are from countries where the United States either has a very strong economic relationship or a strong geopolitical relationship. So that's why we see a lot of Iranian films coming into the state or French films coming into the states. But this year, there's actually, I'm sure there's more than this, but the, for me, the most exciting exception to this rule that maybe suggests a new direction for getting foreign films, perhaps by lesser known directors, in this case, a female director, into into the hands of American consumers and film viewers is this amazing movie Divine by director Puda Benyamina. She is a French Moroccan director and she her film is actually produced by Netflix and it is now currently streaming on Netflix and it sort of just bypassed the entire festival circuit because of that. I mean I think it still actually did pretty well at the festival circuit but largely because she had the platform of Netflix behind her. And if it's streaming on Netflix, is it still eligible for or being a part of the sort of larger kind of award structures that are in place in Hollywood? Totally. Can it still be at the Oscars? I think it can be. In fact, it was nominated at the Golden Globes for Best Foreign Film. Right. So it's a brand new sort of distribution model for foreign movies. Totally. And one that I really appreciate because I'm from New York, but I live in New Haven and we don't always get all the foreign films that I'd want to see in New Haven. And so this way I can... See it from the comfort of my own bedroom. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. What do you have any idea around what percentage of films, foreign films, make it into U.S. distribution? I would think it was a very small number. I'm sure that it is. Yeah. I mean, what essentially happens is of all of the many, many films that are screened at festivals, which is already a small fraction of the films that are being made, there are only a few that are picked up by the big U.S. distributors. And that's largely still. I mean, that's a major role that sort of wonder what role do Hollywood studios play at this point when so many uh, of the best films are actually coming out of independent productions. One of the big roles that Hollywood studios play is that they work to distribute both independent films and foreign films. So maybe we should talk about some specific films uh, that we all liked or that you, especially Anna, liked this year. Should we start with what we saw last night? Totally. I think so. Well, Julieta is the latest film by Pedro Almodovar. It is a departure from his other works in a lot of ways. I'll just start by saying that it features two new actresses. This is the first time actually in 11 years that he's used an actress outside of what has been called Las Chicas Almodovar. (laughs) He has these two new actresses whose names I'm going to try to pronounce, Emma Suarez and Adriana Ugarte, who are terrific. And what's exciting about the structure of this film is that they're actually playing the same role. They're playing Julieta as a woman in her 20s in the 1980s, and then a woman in her 50s in the present day. And the film flashes back between these two time periods and also these two locations. Largely, she's located in Galicia in the 1980s, and then in present day, she's in Madrid. And so what's interesting about this is that we see Almodovar actually returning to his origins as a filmmaker, which were in the 1980s. We have this nostalgic look back to La Movida, this sort of post-Franco or post-1975 moment in Spanish history when there's sort of the sexual revolution, which is when Almodovar really came to fame as a director in Spain. And we get to see him sort of restage that by way of the younger Julieta, who is quite sexy and quite sexually liberated. Oh, yeah. And there's some damn good sex scenes in this movie. (laughs) Um, This is not post-James Franco. 
<laughs> no, <word>. sorry. <laughs> Just no, to make it clear. It's not. It, that's, <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, that's no, right. we still have James Franco yeah. with us. Um, mm-hmm. I was completely moved and, dare I say, aroused by this film. I mean... It, Kate emerged crying. I cried a lot. I should also say that it's the script is based off of a few Alice Monroe stories from the book Runaway, which we were discussing last night. It's an interesting choice for Almodovar. You don't think of Alice Monroe necessarily being the author he would have gone to. But the way he adapted it, I wasn't phased. I didn't think it seemed out of place. He was able to make it, I think, a Spanish story and one where there was high passion and high drama, I would say it was almost a melodrama, or it was. I it mean, was, In yeah. the typical Almodovar it, fashion. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the ways in which this, I think it's totally fair to walk into this film expecting to see all of the sort of hypersaturated colors and bleary-eyed and yet incredibly strong women at the center of the film as there was, and also, again, just some classic melodrama tropes of loss and love and familial hardship. And yet, when Almodovar has been interviewed about this film, the word he keeps returning to to talk about what his sort of aesthetic mission was in the film is austerity. And there is, it is much more restrained, I think, in a lot of ways. And we can talk, I hope we can talk a little bit about the ways in which that restraint plays out both aesthetically and politically. Right. And we discussed that a little bit yesterday. And what do you think about the connection between what seems to be an aesthetic restraint, and I, it seems like some critics have been talking about the political implications of the film and what the relationship is between the two. Yeah, I can't recommend highly enough D.T. Max's New Yorker profile of Almodovar, in which he lays, I think, a totally valid criticism of the sort of trajectory of Almodovar's career in that in his earlier films, you really got to see a more bohemian and perhaps, despite its campiness, realistic depiction of women in Spain by way of actually the transportation they take. There is on trains and buses, and that's actually true of the earlier Julieta in this film as well. Yes. And then as he moves forward in his career, all of a sudden we're in these luxe apartments and then cabs and chartered cars and limos. And yeah, it's probably completely fair to say that Almodovar, the successful director that he is, is a bit out of touch. (laughs) And that is reflected in the narratives he's telling. But there is something, I think especially as he's using a word like austerity, and we see really all of Western Europe, but Spain in particular, really suffering after after the economic downturn, that he's using a term like austerity and then still to talk about his aesthetic vision for the film and really not demonstrating anything that resembles economic austerity in his sort of present tense scenes in the film. They're all in these sort of inexplicably deluxe, streamlined beautiful appliances. I mean, these are like, these are fantasy kitchens that these women are occupying. Oh, yes. Yeah. Fantasy kitchens and beyond, I would say. Yeah. Right. And her career, Julieta's career in the present tense is, uh, I think she's a copy editor. So um, we all know how much money that makes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, maybe in Spain. Maybe in Spain. <laughs> maybe, Spain. Yeah. Maybe in Spain. That's right. There's a lot of copy yeah. editing to do in Spain. Yeah. Also, I mean, we've talked, we've I think, gestured towards the sort of political efficacy and excitement of his earlier films by way of their sort of camp aesthetics, that it was really revolutionary for him to be, to fill his films with drag queens and non-normative sexuality and color in all ways. But in this film, there are these weird sort of seemingly kind of regressive or slightly retrograde movements away from that. I mean, there are sort of these hints at a lesbian 
affair between two younger women in the film. And then within the diegesis, those women sort of break apart in shame. We don't ever see their affair come to fruition. There's, Nor is it ever really even explicitly admitted in some way, right? They, they sort of talk around the kind of love these two women have for each other, which, as I mean, you can see on screen a very close friendship, right? but you don't see anything yeah, beyond lots that. Lots of hand-holding. Right. Yeah. A lot of hand-holding, um, <laughs> which is evident of some kind of relationship, but he never quite gives us an explicit acknowledgement of a sexual relationship between two women. Right, and yeah. and yet one of the responses of a character who's actually Julieta's daughter, Antia, to this perhaps verging on non-normative relationship with her childhood friend is to retreat into what appears to be a religious cult, a turn to faith, because she has been brought up by her liberated La Movida mother. And that is never quite resolved. We sort of end on an affirmative or crypto-conservative note in that, yes, she has rejected La Movida. And there, I'd say probably all of Almodovar's past films, there's been this tension between a repressive Franco regime and a and the promise of a progressive democratic future. And in this film, we see a sort of nostalgic turn back towards La Movida, towards the 1980s and the liberation that was sort of promised in that generation. And then the future was we sort of move forward and look into what could possibly be the future of Spain in this movie. It's just sort of like, well, perhaps we all need to return to faith. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little peculiar for Almodovar, at least. Yeah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. This is Tom Lutz here with Laurie Weiner. I'm going to do my own book recommendation this week. Why not? I'd like to recommend T.C. Boyle's latest novel, The Terranauts. It's a kind of historical novel retelling the story of Biosphere 2, which was this experiment in sustainable living under glass in the Arizona desert. Three characters each tell their story in first person as if they're writing a diary or even a court transcript. It's a famous moment in the history of ecological experiment, and it's made more famous now because Steve Bannon was the guy that took it over and kind of ruined it and caused the wow. thing to kind of all fall apart. Yeah. So it's got this added relevance right at the moment, but it's a fantastically structured and fantastic novel, 500 pages. It's a big hefty thing, and I loved it. When did the experiment take place? 1995. And in what capacity was Steve Bannon working on Steve it? Steve Bannon came in to take it over from the original visionaries who started it, something having to do with the financial end of it. He was working at a bank, I believe, at the time. But he came in and was quickly hated by all involved, as far as I can tell. Fantastic. Once again, that's The Terranauts by one of my favorite writers, Southern California writers, T.C. Tom Boyle. Who also is, a supporter of LARB. And also, we're reading The Terranauts in Tom's book club, as it's called, the book club that LARB runs, and having a great conversation about it on Facebook. Very good. This is LARB Radio Hour, and we are back with Anna Schechtman, the L Review of Books film editor, and Kate Wolf, 
our editor at large. And today we are talking about foreign films and how very strong they were in 2016. And how about another film that is not pointing to faith at all? I would say <laughs> no, it doesn't no. deal with uh, repression either. Is precisely the, or the actually, other. But that's not true because repression and faith are elements of a certain character in the film. But it's Big, big L, elements. Yeah, it's big, big elements. by Paul Verhoeven. Anna, what did you think of that film? I just want to say this was, other than actually The Handmaiden, which perhaps we'll talk about a little later too, this was the most fun I had in a movie theater all year, Elle. It is, first of all, just like the Frenchiest French film I've seen in a so very French. long time. Very French. So French. Yeah. So um, French. <laughs> and it also, it takes the idea of the psychological thriller so literally. I think it's fair to say that sort of not since Psycho has there been a movie that's sort of more prime for psychoanalytic or paranoid reading. So let's give the listeners a little bit more information about yeah. L. It's directed by Paul Verhoeven, famous for masterpieces such as RoboCop and Showgirls. Show One of my favorites. Which I recently rewatched, which it's insane and, and fantastic. The, and the most popular film ever made in Holland, which is Turkish Delight. Oh, mm. Good one. That was a good one. He too. has an yeah. illustrious yeah. career. Oh, definitely. It's based on a novel by Philippe Jian. And it stars the very, very talented and beautiful Isabel Huppert in the main role as Elle. And as Michelle. Her, Michelle. As, yeah. as Elle and as Michelle. Yeah. As, let's give a little, so a, a brief a, synopsis. She works as a video game entrepreneur. Yes, yes in a boutique video game setup. Boss. She's definitely a boss bitch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, she is. And the film opens with a scene, actually, I didn't mention this, it was about the Almodovar film, which has an amazing opening, which we should have said but of a woman in a robe breathing that looks like a big vulva yes um, it does wonderful opening so the really l opens with a cat watching a sex scene we think but then soon find that it was a rape scene yes um, yes so isabella bear in the film is raped and looks into who possibly violated her in this way but at the same time is very nonplussed it seems about having been violated she doesn't go to the police she tells her friends at dinner and then proceeds to say let's eat you know right. so that's interesting and there's some complexity with her family and her ex-husband and her best friend who she runs the boutique video gaming company with Anna you promised us a lengthy Zizek reading or maybe even an like a embodiment for the duration of this radio hour about Elle would you give that yeah, to us. you know, I wasn't quick enough on my feet to actually solicit a review of this film from Slavo Zizek. So in lieu of that, I'm going to do my best Slavo Zizek impression. That's Here, not put true. On this, <laughs> put on this pillowcase. That's not true. But I, I'm watching this film. I was totally drawn back to my my undergraduate years, hoping to be a Lacanian film scholar. That's so cute. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. No, by the time I was an undergrad, everyone was like, oh, it is. It's very quaint of you. Very cute that you're into Lacan. So... It's still very cute. Thanks, uh. thanks, thanks. <laughs> okay. The film slowly reveals to the viewer the sort of originary violence that is all about her father, who is a Catholic man. Of course, the, the law of the father is very essential to Lacanian analysis. And then we see her as an adult, as an older woman, and she throughout the film is called a cunt or a kunas <laughs> throughout the film. And she's tough. She seems completely self-sufficient in many ways, including her response to her violation. She doesn't call the police. She moves on and throughout life. She lives alone. 
And in this sense, I think it would be totally apt to call her not a kunas, but a phallic mother or the mother phantasmatically endowed with the phallus, which for Lacan or and Freud is the sort of origin of all perversions or fetish. She has no lack. She and is therefore sort of symbolically castrative. She doesn't need a damn person in her life. She's terrifying. <laughs> She's terrifying. Yeah. She is quite terrifying, although also incredibly alluring, as we've described. The other way in which this film sort of draws on French psychoanalytic theory is the Zizek has a book called Enjoy Your Symptom. And there is a way in which the symptom of this originary trauma, her sort of the way in which she courts violence throughout her life, whether it's in her video gaming industry or even the way she responds to her rapist, is really a manifestation of her enjoying her symptom. It's something that she wants to sort of repeat the violence over and over again in this sort of compulsion to repeat beyond the pleasure principle way. And of course, there's this sort of very charming nod to talk therapy in which she sort of sits down and explains to her neighbor the trauma that occurred in her past. And she goes, yes, yeah, it's always very helpful for me to talk about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then finally, if you'll, you're still with me. Oh, or, oh yes. Okay. We okay. are here. This feels like talk therapy for me, in fact. It's very helpful for me to talk about it. <laughs> The phallic mothers of your past or no, anything. Just, just look, of my present, I of would your say. Present. Okay. Lacan famously said, a letter always arrives at its destination, which is to say that there's a sort of fadedness that we feel when we come to the end of a series of chance events and the events sort of present themselves as sort of narratively complete. And that, of course, is just sort of true of all of Hollywood films, but particularly true of the genre of the thriller where everything does sort of come circle. And there's a way in which this film almost spirals. It gives us these sort of narrative resolutions to her trauma over and over and over again. Perhaps she's, I don't want to spoil a film, but there's a way in which the letter or the letter in this case being her original trauma arrives at its destination over and over again as she is sort of, as some form of trauma is repeated throughout her life or throughout her dealing with the sexual violence. And then I really... My favorite moment in the film, if I'm... Oh, yeah. Yes. If tell I, us your favorite moment. Okay. And this is, like, totally impolitic and, you know, I'm just going for it. You're um, Zizek. I'm Zizek, right. God, I got to have to be impolitic. Absolutely. <laughs> so the responsible act, the feminist act, in which she would report the crime of the sexual violence against her and hopefully spare other women from the same fate is actually co-opted into an erotic scene in this film, it actually presents itself as a come on to her rapist. She sort of threatens him with revealing his crime to the police and preventing other women from the same fate. And he knows and we know as viewers that what she's doing is courting him to try it again. And again, it's this compulsion to repeat. And so her resistance is then presented as as flirtation in its own way. And so there's a way in which what the film is doing with that is insisting that you know, no means yes, which is, of course, not only the least feminist iteration of, of organization of those words into a sentence, but it's also the classic French feminist critique of both Freud and Lacan that all forms of resistance are essentially actually a disclosure of consent. And on that note, my favorite moment <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> was when she walks into her house and the cat just jumps directly onto her face. And I just could not stop laughing in the theater, which in that context wasn't totally appropriate because what follows is oh, quite a violent yeah. scene. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny. I was watching clips of her accepting her Academy Award for after she accepted her Academy oh, Award for, for Best Actress at the Golden Globe. She had their, you know, they do the press interviews afterwards. And she was asked, like, what drew her to the role and what she loved about the role. And in classic Isabelle Hubert fashion, she sort of thinks about it, decides if she wants to say something banal and, like, please her press core and instead goes, I really love the cat I got to work with. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I wish we could all choose our jobs that way. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great yeah. cat. <laughs> it was it did a very good job. That this cat. was this was definitely the year of Isabella Hubert because I wanted to mention another film I saw her in by Mia Hansen Love, who's a I think a she lives in France, but she's from Scandinavia called Things to Come also stars Isabelle Hubert and is made just by, it's a very simple film, it's very slow, and it's really about watching Isabelle Hubert just be, and it's a real pleasure. So she hit two home runs this year, for sure. The last movie we wanted to discuss was The Handmaiden, which came out of South Korea. Anna, would you talk a little bit about The Handmaiden? Yeah, absolutely. This is, I saw this film on a date, and Hmm. it did not go well. (laughs) Why? <laughs> because I was convinced that it was one of the best films I'd seen all year. And my date thought that it was, that there was no self-awareness, that it was not a self-conscious film. Wrong. Wrong. It is. Sorry, so, date. Sorry, date. I know. It's dumped. Dumped. <laughs> dumped the motherfucker already, as Dan Savage says. Yes. It is wildly self-conscious and it's, well, let me just start with a brief synopsis. There is a woman is hired as a handmaiden to a Japanese heiress, Lady Hideko. And it takes place in the 1930s in South Korea. And it interestingly, there are all of these sort of layers of intrigue and also layers of imperial culture that one sees throughout the film. The Japanese imperialists in South Korea are westernized and bringing British culture. So we have this sort of transitive shift or movement of Western culture into South Korea by way of corsets and bath salts and all of these really sensuous product of the British monarchy. An enormous British style estate. Totally. The whole movie takes place on this beautiful kind of English British colonialist estate. Yeah. And so the handmaiden named Suki is, she's secretly involved in a plot to defraud her, the heiress who she serves. And yet sort of responsibility or knowingness is passed between characters with such speed that it's hard to know who's actually defrauding whom throughout the plot. And just to say the the team that you end up sort of inevitably rooting for is Lady Hideku, Hideko and Suki, her handmaiden, because they fall into a very passionate lesbian affair, which involves one of the most amazing shots of 2016, which is what I'd like to call the vulva shot. It's a shot, reverse shot into Lady Hideko's vagina. Um, oh. oh, yeah. From, <laughs> from the point of view. From the point of view. Of, essentially. Yeah. And it's hilarious. If you don't laugh. Very funny. If you don't laugh at that moment, date of mine, <laughs> you don't know what's good. But the one thing I'll say about this film, without belaboring an analysis of this film, which could go on forever and ever, is that it presses on all of your sort of pleasure points. There's slapstick. There is such great beauty and intrigue in a way that makes one 
or at least made me incredibly self-conscious as a viewer. Like, like, should I be uncomfortable that I'm taking pleasure in all of this sort of exotified beauty, in all of this sort of easy humor? And the answer is yes, you should absolutely take pleasure in it because it seems the authorial intent of this film is to make the viewer interrogate what pleasure is, why we get pleasure from these impolitic representations politic, if not just deeply offensive representations. And so, you know, enjoy your symptom and (laughs) enjoy your symptom, but think about it. (laughs) Right. And I'd also want to highly, highly, highly recommend the LARB review written by Marta Figlerovitz, a professor at Yale of The Handmaiden. It's so damn smart. So please read away. And watch the film. And watch the film. So we've been talking about some really great movies today. And I wonder, do you guys watch award shows at all? My family has a tradition of having an intergenerational Oscar screening party in which my mom invites all of her friends and my sister and I invite our friends. My mom is actually an art historian, and so it's all about the red carpet. She is Uh. as good at critiquing the objectification of women as she is at objectifying women on you know (laughs) on her own terms a mom who can do both yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) Um, but i didn't get to see the golden globes this year because you know i'm a millennial i don't have a television and it wasn't streaming anywhere i think i might have gotten the better deal in that i just read a lot of amazing live tweets of the show really big shout out to larb editor andrew hoborek who has an amazing I'd rather read his live tweets of the presidential debates or any award show than actually watch either of those TV spectaculars. Right. So maybe the most interesting way in which award shows exist today is paratextually. Sort of or paratextually, yeah. right. Or on the, on the periphery of the actual event and more in the digital sphere. Yeah. Having said that, I did go online and watch a bunch of the acceptance speeches. Mm. Kate, I know you love an acceptance speech. I, I really do. <laughs> I noticed this year at the Golden Globes that the music seemed to come on so quickly, but although I didn't really get to watch that many. Yes, I really love acceptance speeches. I think they're the most authentic part of the <laughs> of the show. They're the wild card. You don't know what people are going to say, you know, even though they often do just say the same things. But some people's reactions are surprising. Some people are, play it real cool. I mean, there are a few of those. Some people you would think, oh, aren't they jaded? Don't they know it's kind of a rigged game? You know, aren't they disgusted by the whole system and the lobbying and the money spent? I think they have politics and yet they're breathless and crying and their mother and, you know. I know. Real shout out to Isabel Hubert who came on stage basically in the midst of orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Julie, I, I When Julie Christie won, I think in the mid-60s for Darling, she also really is in the throes of something Something and can barely she can barely say anything because she's just so ecstatic (laughs) in a way that is almost bizarre but you have other favorites i definitely like the kind of soapbox i'm up here i'm going to talk as long as i want and i do think i'm always surprised that you would think actors get so much recognition but that for everyone, it does seem like this is the moment or that's the construction of it, that this is the moment they've been waiting for. This is when they finally have their voice and their chance to say what they always wanted to say. So those I appreciate. I really liked when Matthew McConaughey a couple years ago had a very strange acceptance speech where he's compared himself to God and mm-hmm. he said that every day he tries to live up to what himself. he... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was amazing. Um, <laughs> And definitely the political actions of someone like Marlon Brando, people who do more of spectacles. I love them and I'm very sentimental. And so it's just a real easy way for me to 
start the day with some tears. I have one favorite. It's a throwback. Yeah, throwback what is acceptance it? speech. It's sort of well documented because it was recreated for the film Mommy Dearest. Joan Crawford in 1946, when she won for Mildred Pierce, her contract was just terminated at MGM and she's moved over to Warner Brothers. And just winning the award for Mildred Pierce, which I assume she knew she was going to win, was not enough of a spectacle or an FU to MGM. And so she f- allegedly feigned illness in order to receive the Academy Award from her bedroom in mm-hmm. a negligee. And there are amazing, I encourage everyone to Google Joan Crawford Academy Award, Mildred Pierce, because there are just from every angle, lighting is perfect. Here she is in her alleged sickbed holding her Academy Award. And I just learned that that very Academy Award just sold for almost $500,000. So, Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's going to be real fun to watch more award shows this year and see those speeches. I aspire to accepting awards in my bed. Totally. In the future. We'll watch our future foreign films from under the covers on Netflix, (laughs) and then we'll accept our Academy Awards, and we'll tweet about it. We will close out the show with this week's classic poetry drop. This week's poem is Terra Incognita by D.H. Lawrence. I don't think D.H. Lawrence needs much of an introduction. Does well, he? he might. You nah, know, you don't not going to do it. Look him up. I can never think about D.H. Lawrence poetry without thinking about Jeff Dyer's Out of Sheer Rage, his book about trying and failing to write a book about D.H. Lawrence, in which he has this five or six or ten page section about packing to go to a Greek island where he's supposed to go try to finish this book and has this long, seemingly endless argument, very comic argument with himself about whether or not to bring the collected poems of D.H. Lawrence, because he knows that if he does not bring the collected poems of D.H. Lawrence with him, he is going to use that as an excuse for not being able to finish the book. He would finish the book except... He doesn't have the collected poems. He needs the collected poems. Unfortunately, the collected poems weighs 100 pounds. It's a huge book, and he's flying on Ryanair, so he can only take so much luggage. He keeps putting it in his suitcase, weighing the suitcase. He has to take three other D.H. Lawrence books out. And, of course, if he takes those out, he'll never be able to finish his book on D.H. Lawrence. And it's just a a very funny thing. So I think of D.H. Lawrence's poetry as an impediment to writing. And if Jeff Dyer had a Kindle, he never would have written that book. Exactly. Terra Incognita by D.H. Lawrence. There are vast realms of consciousness still undreamed of, vast ranges of experience, like the humming of unseen harps we know nothing of within us. Oh, when man has escaped from the barbed wire entanglement of his own ideas and his own mechanical devices, there is a marvelous, rich world of contact and sheer fluid beauty and fearless face-to-face awareness of now naked life and me and you and other men and women and grapes and ghouls and ghosts and green moonlight and ruddy orange limbs stirring the limbo of the unknown air. And I so saw softer than the space between the stars and all things and nothing and being and not being alternately palpitant when at last we escape the barbed wire enclosure of know thyself knowing we can never know 
we can but touch and wonder and ponder and make our effort and dangle in a last fastidious fine delight as the fuchsia does, dangling her reckless drop of purple after so much putting forth and slow mounting marvel of a little tree. That was Terra Incognita by D.H. Lawrence, read by Penny Fuller, from the recording Poetic License, produced by Glenn Rovin. I do like that poem quite a bit. You know, there's a way in which it's classic modernist desire for the primitive untainted experience that somehow existed in the past. You know, it's really backward looking in that way and, and ideologically suspect in all sorts of ways. And yet at the same time, there is something about that idea that there is always the new out there waiting for us as long as we open ourselves up to it. I, I kind of think that's true. Yeah. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Laurie Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 